risk assessment and surveillance and governmentality. Like these are colonial tools of oppression and they are so central in the ways that we think about suicide and suicide prevention, which leads us to have such little nuance into the conversation of livability. Welcome to Unlivable Cultures. Unlivable Cultures is a podcast making with and borrowing from anthropology, social theory, and other forms of knowledge for a more livable world. My name is Cody Skahan, and I use he, him pronouns, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Julia Coverdale, and I use they, them pronouns. And I am Clayton Gerard, using he, him pronouns. This podcast episode deals with sensitive topics around suicide, mental, emotional distress, and the medical and psychiatric system and ways that it can be traumatizing in different situations. So please proceed listening with that in mind and feel free to tap out on this conversation if it starts to arouse some negative or complicated feelings or difficult feelings. We have other episodes and hopefully at least some of them are a little bit more hopeful and cheery. And funny. Yeah, and entertaining. So... While throughout this episode, we critique a lot of the systems of care in the medical and psychiatric system, we don't want to diminish how influential and impactful they can be in people's lives and definitely don't want to discourage anyone from reaching out to these services if it can be helpful for someone. But we think it's also important to have critical conversations of the systems that structure our world and that can and do contribute to unlivable cultures. This conversation isn't meant to be prescriptive. Do what you need to do. (laughs) Access the services that you need in the moment. We're not here to tell you what you can and can't do or should or shouldn't do. We're just here to talk about some social issues and hopefully bring some nuance to conversations. But yeah, I just want to underline do what you need to do to be safe and to be well this is not a podcast discussion for advice <laughs> yeah i'm getting uh, therapy from chat gpt as we speak no okay i was trying to use chat gpt to come up with uh taglines but they're just awful to be honest so okay well now i kind of want to hear them so <laughs> okay so i was trying to say like make funny taglines about suicide hotlines <laughs> Are you sure the FBI didn't flag you for that or something? I've seen some worse stuff, to be honest. Like, there's so many. And plus, okay, am I an amateur? No, I'm using a VPN. Don't worry about it. It's just like, when data sharing meets hotlines, a comedy of errors. That one's actually... That is pretty good. That one's not bad, actually. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The juicy gossip from suicide hotlines. A hilarious look at data sharing. Like, what? What the fuck? Yeah, I'm not opposed to it. <laughs> I'm sure that everybody listening to this is like, this was a truly hilarious, such a hilarious episode. I know, yeah. Speaking of treats, data sharing that's hotter than a freshly baked cookie. A tongue-in-cheek take on suicide hotlines. Sharing is caring when it comes to suicide hotline data. What the fuck? Okay, interesting. Sharing is caring. Yeah. I mean, 
sharing is caring and profitable. <laughs> From the phone line to the data sheet, how suicide hotlines are making data sharing hilarious. <laughs> So funny. Every time I get my data shared, I just laugh so much. <laughs> so we're in a constant state of laughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So today, the focus of our conversation, at least where it's going to start, who knows where it's going to go. But we're starting this conversation talking about suicide hotlines and crisis hotlines and how these entities, usually nonprofit entities, end up sharing data in different ways. One of the central articles we're looking at is from Politico, and it talks about how the crisis text line had sort of an agreement with a company called Loris AI to share data and kind of the implications of that and some of the questionable or some of the complex questions that this form of data sharing brought to the surface. So to dig into that article a little, Crisis Text Line is one of the world's biggest mental health support lines. It's something that people can go and connect with someone who can talk them through crisis situations. Crisis Text Line launched in 2013. So at the point of recording this, it's about 10 years old. This Politico article was published in January of 2022. So that's a little bit of time of time has passed since the publication of this article. But at the time of the publication, Crisis Text Line had exchanged over 219 million messages and more than 6.7 million conversations over text, Facebook Messenger, and WhatsApp. So these conversations are between volunteers who work for the Crisis Text Line and people who are in distress, who are reaching out in those moments of intense need and emotional difficulty and trying to receive some help. They do a sort of overview of what these interactions look like. So the person texts crisis text line and they get an automated response of, you know, they reach the crisis text line terms and conditions and they share a bit more about, you know, what's going on for them. Based on these first few messages, they are then triaged through an algorithm to determine who's high risk. High risk people are put at the top of the queue and, you know, crisis text line says they try to have a response from a counselor in about eight seconds, whereas lower risk people may be waiting a couple minutes. So pro tip folks, if you want to cut to the front of the line, just uh, give some worrying signs about your mental health. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then the counselor, the volunteer counselor kind of exchanges messages back and forth. So the significance of this piece is that Crisis Text Line started sharing data with Loris AI, which was also created by the same person who created Crisis Text Line. The data that was being shared with Loris AI, the reason why it was being shared is because Loris AI was wanting to integrate more empathy into artificial intelligence and customer service interactions through AI. So the really complicated questions that this situation brings up is whether 
it's appropriate for a nonprofit like Crisis Text Line to be sharing data with an entity like Loris AI that can profit off of that data. So you're taking as a kind of disclaimer or for context, this is more de-identified, anonymous, somewhat aggregated data that's being shared with Loris AI. So one of the questions, like I said, is, is it appropriate for this data that a nonprofit gathers in their volunteer services appropriate for someone to profit off of and commercialize? The second is, in these moments of intense distress, can a person who is reaching out to Crisis Text Line give actual informed consent? There is a 50-paragraph terms and conditions package that people who reach out to Crisis Text Line have to go through and click the I agree to the terms and conditions in order to have access to the service of Crisis Text Line and be able to talk with one of the volunteers. However, this is something that brings up some interesting questions of, you know, when you're in some of the moments of the most intense need, do you have the capacity to fully give consent for someone to use your data? As Jennifer King frames it, who is the Privacy and Data Policy Fellow at the Stanford University Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, she says the nonprofit, quote, may have legal consent, but do they have actual, meaningful, emotional fully understood consent. And that's an important question to pose. And one of Loris AI's central missions of this data sharing was, as they put it, a valuable way to put more empathy into the world. And so this gets to the point of how they were saying, using these data of people reaching out to a crisis text line in their times of need, analyzing and incorporating the data of volunteers interacting with those service consumers can be helpful in creating more positive customer service interactions of artificial intelligence, which is a whole path that we can go down. But it's important to note how there is a significant lack of government oversight when it comes to data sharing in these terms between nonprofit entities and for-profit entities. And, you know, our government isn't necessarily on the cutting edge of data and technology and information and the ways that this world is swiftly changing. So it's really a gap that this situation poses of, you know, what are the ethics, what's appropriate, what's adequate, and what are the stakes here? What should we be able to get away with? And what is actually, you know, not okay morally, ethically, Legally. I think just given the context, it's impossible to not connect this to chat GBT in some ways, although I don't want to beat that dead horse too much because everybody's talking about it. But I think in the context of this with Loris AI and adapting their sort of customer service program, like they talk about value and empathy and things like that. But like to what degree do we even want a AI service that can like at least not uh, replicate or or imitate a human even, I would say. Maybe to some degree imitate, but it's questionable. Because what about the jobs we're losing? <laughs> the jobs, no. The economy. <laughs> 
think of the economy? Well, that's funny because they do couch it in terms of the value that this provides as a service. But just, yeah, with the chat GBT thing, like, do we want even some sort of AI, especially for customer service or, you know, suicide hotlines that can provide some semblance of being human? Because then I think on some level that kind of just, to me, signals a shift in society that's like kind of in some ways irreversible when we come to like the idea of technology and automation is not is like to some degree supposed to relate replace humans from doing tasks but it's not supposed to replace like people in the caring economy which is essentially what this sort of is maybe not so much with customer service but i mean i don't think the analogy is too hard to to push because like yeah historically we've already i think moved away from customer service and service being sort of a very personal and humanistic thing to what it is today. Like, I mean, the people in these positions, I guess, are essentially robots because they're just reading from these pre-set lines, what they're supposed to be saying. And I think maybe that's potentially why like having a customer service AI isn't really all that difficult because it's already like the way that we treat people when they call in or something, it's already like that. And then the people on the other end of the line are expected to be like robots as well because they're not supposed to react emotionally and and uh, anything like that. They're just supposed to take everything they get, yelled at them with, with the same sort of tone and emotion without, without reacting to it so much. And if you don't mind me going off of that more, I think it is important to look at this in those terms because, you know, thinking of crisis text line, it's easy to kind of put that into a different category as artificial intelligence and not on the cusp of data and information technology and science and those kinds of things. But Nancy Lublin, who was the nonprofit's co-founder and former CEO, mentioned that I think it was in a TED talk, she's described the helpline as a tech startup. And In her previous roles, she founded the group Dress for Success, which was to provide business clothing and job training for women in need and those types of more business, entrepreneurial, startup kind of adjacent work. So I don't know if it's just me, but like I get like a little bit of a physical reaction when I hear tech startup. I'm just like, I know, uh, like I recently watched the dropout on Hulu about um, what's her name? Elizabeth Holmes, I Blonde think. woman with the deep voice. Yes, Elizabeth Holmes. And this is giving me strong Elizabeth Holmes vibes, <laughs> which I don't want to equate Nancy Lublin to Elizabeth Holmes because mm-hmm. I don't think that's fair. But I think it's important to look at it from this perspective as well, because in that TED Talk, she's talking about, you know, using data in these conversations. A quote that she has is, we know that if you text the words MG and rubber band, there's a 99% match for substance abuse. And we know that if you text in sex, oral, and Mormon, you're questioning if you're gay. Those are my, those are definitely, (laughs) aren't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Those are ways that, you know, it can be helpful. You know, I can see their internal meetings of their word clouds with like, most used terms and chats and everything else. And, you know, this data can be... This is how to develop your gaydar. Yeah. It's your gaydar. (laughs) And this data honestly can be useful in research. I do want to credit them in some way, at least with the extent that they go through for research collaborations. Like there are actual researchers that 
do go into partnership with accessing some of their data and create some valuable scholarship in ways of what's going on with Crisis Text Line. And they do have a framework for research collaborations requirements such as be affiliated with an academic or research institution, includes obtaining the approval of an institutional review board, etc. Expect to spend three plus months working with our de-identified anonymized data, have technical expertise, you have to complete crisis counselor training to better understand the data, and so on and so forth. So I don't want to minimize, you know, the requirements that they have, especially me personally having some experience on projects with data sharing agreements and integrated data systems. There are robust ways to enter into these data sharing relationships and protect information, protect actual like identifiable information and use more aggregate level data that doesn't give any personal information or textured lived experience information. But in a lot of ways, the data that they were sharing with Laura's AI, according to some articles, did share conversation data. And that does kind of go into a different territory than just simply de-identified aggregate data. I also want to go off on the tangent that in February of 2022, Crisis Text Line publicly announced that they were no longer sharing any data with Loris AI and Loris AI was going to delete any data that it had received from Crisis Text Line. So I think some of these articles and the like publicity that came from it kind of put a stop to this in a lot of ways, but it's still problematic to think about what happens if this can be de-anonymized, if that's a word. And so historically, these kinds of things have happened where disclosures about a person's HIV status was common in the 1980s or, you know, someone's involvement with Planned Parenthood, if that's public, can cause some conflict in their everyday situations, whether it's their job, volunteering opportunities, you know, family dynamics, anything else. Um, So accessing services like these or having some sort of condition, illness, disability, or any kind of in some ways, stigmatized experience attached to your name can actually have real consequences. You know, insurance companies can start getting information about who's accessing crisis text lines. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone's rates go up because there's more available information on the services that they need. And the insurance company's like, hey, you've got some conditions that we're concerned about. So pay us more. Yeah, there's a study from that was produced by the researchers from the Imperial College of London. They published a paper in Nature Communications. Uh, it's called Estimating the Success of Re-Identifications and Incomplete Datasets Using Generative Models. So basically, they took uh, so 210 different datasets gathered from five sources, including the U.S. government, that featured information on more than 11 million individuals and just using a machine learning model and data sets included up to 15 identifiable characteristics such as age, gender, and marital status, the researchers were able to accurately re-identify 99.98% of Americans in an anonymized data set. So clearly our, our attempts to anonymize data are not working. So any form of data sharing, especially around 
sensitive topics like people call it, like texting into crisis hotlines. As as Clayton says, I think the insurance insurance aspect of it is only the tip of the iceberg. Considering the the Madden America article we read. Oh, I have a good segue. I think. <laughs> okay. Sure. Okay. I want to clarify. Like, I think it's important to do our due diligence of saying the expectations of data sharing and the requirements that Crisis Text Line has, and also the fact that they are not sharing data with Loris AI anymore. But I think in conjunction with that, the more important question here is, should there even be this data to share? Like, is this method of surveillance an effective way of going about prevention? Because that's kind of the assumption that is at work here, is that having this data is going to help us better serve or have more effective suicide prevention methods. And I don't think that's the case. I'd love to get into this further into the conversation, but I think that really sets the scene for our Mad in America article where we can see a lot more of the implications of what happens when you access these resources and it goes awry at some points. Back to you, Cody. <laughs> Very smooth. Very smooth. Um, yeah, so the, the Mad in America article we read and will be discussing is called Suicide Hotlines Build Themselves as Confidential, even as some trace your call. This is by Rob Whippend, I think is how you say his name, perhaps. There's like a sort of subcaption under the title that I think is pretty just good of summing it up before I get into the finer details, but it says that every year, U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Center's covertly trace tens of thousands of confidential calls and police come to homes, schools, and workplaces to first forcibly take callers to psychiatric hospitals. Some people's lives get up in it. I think that last part is kind of an interesting inclusion because I, I, I think it's an understatement that some people's lives get upended. Well, I mean, not everybody's, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess there's some different definitions of some people's, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and it's important, though, not to completely generalize and make and like demonize these services because they can be helpful for people. Like they can be extremely influential, but at the same time, there are lots of lots of problems. Yeah. I think I've just been at this like climate change adaptation conference and the way that they would talk about this would be to say like maladaptation because they talk about how these are genuinely like people who are trying to do a good thing in most cases who have, you know, like really noble goals at heart, but sometimes due to just the complicated nature of these things, uh, like not having competence or experience with sort of sensitive or complex topics like this, it can lead to not only like negative effects, but like literally the complete opposite effects of, of what you're intending. And I mean, like that's also one facet of what Lisa Stevenson calls anonymous care, which is the fact that these volunteers are trying to experience themselves and see themselves as caring individuals and caring service providers where, you know, the people on the other end aren't exactly receiving the quality life-saving care that the providers think that they are giving because it's anonymous and there's no follow-through and, you know, that single moment may help, but 
it doesn't actually change the conditions and situations that the person is in after that moment or even during that moment. Yeah, I, I think that would be a great place to pick up. The article kind of goes through and describes a number of different case studies of people calling into the different suicide hotlines having the police called on them because um, there's so volunteers at suicide hotlines are put through sort of varying levels of training. They're given a certain sort of guidelines or, or maybe sheets that they're supposed to pay attention to. And when, when talking to people to identify whether or not a intervention by calling the police may be necessary to prevent a suicide in this situation. But there's so many so in the article, they go into talk about how the expert ability to predict suicide barely beats random chance. So like them being just on the other side of the phone from someone listening to their tone of voice, listening to what they're saying, there's so little you can actually do to determine whether or not a, an intervention is, is necessary in order to save someone, unless it's like, you know, completely obvious. And these volunteers, despite, you know, have the best intentions in mind again, but with the nature of these kind of things, it's, I would say it's just in general, extremely difficult unless you're like licensed psychiatric expert or something to be able to tell really. And even in those cases, as I mentioned, it's barely beats random chance. So these volunteers will often hear certain things, feel the tone of voice, start asking prompting questions. Like in one example, someone mentioned the call attendant asked, if you were going to kill yourself, when would you do it? How would you do it? The interviewer, like the interviewee, hadn't thought about it seriously before, but suggested the call attendant, oh, she would likely overdose with pills. So it's kind of like this thing where the volunteers and their questions are oftentimes actually escalating the conversation and getting it to this point of where, according to their guidelines, a crisis intervention might be possible. And then, so many of these case studies talk about when this crisis intervention occurs, they could be at work, they could be at school, they could be even at their home, especially for people under 18. And this can have drastic effects on their career, on their lives, and oftentimes they're forcibly hospitalized. So there's different examples where someone was at work and they had called the crisis text line, I believe from their home, but then they were tracked to their workplace using their cell phone. But there's other instances where someone was a university student, they were studying law and someone showed up to one of their classes and it basically is a black mark on their record for the rest of their life when you study law, especially. Just, just so many other cases, especially with the forcible hospitalization. This person who they call S was detained in what he quoted as absolutely miserable veterans hospital after he was able to leave he was then charged with you know over a thousand dollars in an ambulance bill had to get clearance from doctors to actually be able to leave and then not too long after he lost his job and wasn't able to pay for rent and other you know necessary items so there are a lot of ripple effects to these and you know, it's a significant risk if an ambulance shows up at your place of employment and basically detains you, saying that you're a risk to yourself and others, and you have to be hospitalized in front of all of your colleagues and employers. So, yeah, not to mention that they talk about how research shows that psychiatric hospitalization seems to be extremely suicidogenic. Uh, is the word they use. So that means there's a as many as 10 times escalated risk of suicide after someone is forcibly hospitalized 
or put in some sort of psychiatric institution because they're deemed to be a harm to themselves. And yeah, I mean, if, if you go online, you can see so many anecdotes about this. In the article, they have a bunch of anecdotes about how being put into these facilities, and this is this occurs when people, where they're forced into a, a psychiatric hospital. And like, it's compounding factors in this case, I would say, because it's the actual, like the material effects and the, the sort of like work-life effects, the career effects that it has um, for delimiting your future and all of that. But that's also just compounding on the traumatic experience of someone, police officer or and or ambulance showing you at, showing up at your home and forcing you to get in, forcing you to go to somewhere you don't want to go, forcing you to stay there for hours on end, often without any contact with friends or family, only seen by maybe doctors and, and nurses um, for like, I believe it's typically at least 48 hours. And Obviously, this is a very traumatic experience, especially when people are, you know, constantly it's like it's like a bit of a gaslighting situation because they're saying like, oh, I'm not suicidal. But the nurses and and, and people around them are saying, well, there's a reason why you're here. And there's also multiple layers to it. So people have marginalized identities. So like queer and trans folks or BIPOC individuals, you know, you can experience a lot of structural and interpersonal prejudices in these settings like there's a lot of examples of trans folks who are taken to these hospitals and put in these units where they're constantly being dead named and misgendered and you know they're paired up in a room with another patient that's of a different gender identity and they don't have any agency in those situations people of you know different races and ethnicities often experience discrimination in those places as well due to white supremacy and just the way the medical system works, but also just interpersonally and um, cross-culturally. There's a lot of misunderstandings of what health looks like, the ways people should be behaving, and so on and so forth. So it's basically saying like, when you're at your lowest moment because of, you know, a combination of factors, potentially it could be, we're going to take you somewhere where those factors will be even more escalated as if, you know, normal America uh, oppression wasn't enough for you. Let's compound some of that trauma. (laughs) Give you the biggest bang for your buck. (laughs) It's efficient. That's for sure. That's for sure. As you're talking about these the Madden America piece and more of the anecdotal information that's shared in the article. I did want to note, so taken from the Crisis Text Line National Report from 2020, Crisis Text Line says that less than 1% of all conversations may be life-threatening of imminent risk situations, and that's when they refer the person to emergency services. So this is the situation in which the Madden America piece is talking about where the person's determined high risk, they seem to be in a life-threatening imminent risk and need support from some kind of emergency service. So then the crisis text line, whoever the entity is, contacts emergency services to send someone over there to kind of intervene in that situation. Using a percentage like 1% can often diminish what that actually looks like. So in 2020, Crisis Text Line supported 
843,982 textures in crisis, exchanging more than 48 million messages through 1.4 million conversations between textures. So 1% of any of those numbers, even just looking at the 800 and almost 44,000 textures, that's still a big number. If you're just blatantly refer them to emergency services and not really consider the consequences of that. And that's when we kind of get into this. As long as the person stays alive, that's what matters most. And then we get into some complicated and troubling waters. It's like using like, uh, you know, the worst, like the, the strongest possible intervention that you have as like some sort of shotgun approach. So to add some detail to, to those statistics too, like from a 2016 study of uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifelines, they found that the number of times police were sent out range ranges from 0.5% to 8.5% of calls. The 2% rate is what is usually is admitted by the NSPL. The number and rate of interventions appears to be actually much higher. So to give that a concrete number, there was... Mobile mental crisis teams were sent to visit another 108,386 callers. And then this doesn't include that the local numbers. So they have like local hotline numbers, not just the national hotline numbers, but the, the local numbers. So that includes another 8 million calls in a year. Um, and assuming a 2% average of interventions, that's more than an additional 160,000 police interventions um, of people calling into to these national suicide hotlines in the U.S., so uh, which is a staggering number. Yeah, those yeah. are huge numbers. And, you know, these numbers aren't in opposition because one's a text line and, you know, this one's talking about call lines. So I just know, too, that one of the big, I think it's a crisis mental health line that we've, one of the pieces talks about, um, recently like updated its number to 988, which people might have seen like being hailed across social media when that happened. And that was a couple of, probably a couple months ago, maybe even longer. Logic needs to change his song. You know, the song where he has the, says the hotline number. That's the big takeaway here. Yeah, <laughs> If you take anything away from this episode. <laughs> I, which I think is just like, an interesting move in general because I think in one part it's um, trying to increase their on picture to be like here's this much shorter number that you can remember much easier in a crisis to give us a call and and, um, help save your life but I also think it's doing something interesting by kind of correlating itself with 911 which obviously correlates with hospitals and fire trucks but most notably with the police that's a lot of times the connotations of that number so i think it's interesting to kind of give yourself a number that correlates you a little bit with the police obviously they're a little bit correlated with the police even more so than as we've been talking i think we're kind of seeing with that shift a lot of like neoliberal moves to align themselves with these systems of power more explicitly than like they had been doing in the past because who knows about all of these like personal stories and all those things yeah and we can't overlook you know all the police violence and brutality that happens when someone calls 911 
about a mental health crisis. Like there are so many examples of violence and killings that occur because the police are called in to a situation in which they have no contextual understanding of what's happening. And someone who's in psychological distress can seem dangerous at times if they're in an extremely activated state. That's not something to take lightly. And it's important to point out, Julia, this association that's being made to 911 and the systemic factors at play. Like this is significantly correlated to deaths of BIPOC individuals, specifically Black folks who are targeted because they're already seen as a threat in many ways because of our culture here in America. And then they're exhibiting behaviors that aren't normative in a lot of ways. And so the assumption just goes straight to this person's a threat and the threat needs to be neutralized, basically. And so, like, we have to mention the violence that occurs when the police are involved in mental health crises, in a lot of ways. It's not always the case. What was the statistic? 2% is what they admit publicly. So Yeah, I think it's also important to note, too, that a lot of the times, like, police violence is more likely to occur against somebody that has a mental health issue, has, like, autism or schizophrenia or... Anybody that's not a neurotypical cis white man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. the word I was looking for. Neurotypical. So it's like involving police in these situations actually doesn't save the lives of anyone. In fact, it puts people's lives at risk more, even if that's not what they were looking for at all in the situation. Right. I wonder, like, just from a care perspective, I think it's really interesting that they changed the number to nine eight eight, and as you say, have those connotations of of police because like this was done recently right so it's like in the context of all the black lives matter protests and all of these things like purposely aligning yourself with the police and and trying to stand as this entity of care and this this source of care is just like from a marketing perspective doesn't seem that smart like if i was it was a conscious decision though you know they had to have out of this yeah yeah i mean i like the idea of like making it easier to like type in but but at the same time yeah there's just like the care perspective right because it's it's not like clearly i would say that the general sentiment isn't i'm gonna call the police because they care for me or for, for some source of care or comfort especially in these situations that that need this kind of i want to like pull on this thread a little bit using Ruth Wilson Gilmore's concept of organized abandonment. So thinking of the fact that this was a conscious decision, I'm sure they had interviews, focus groups, surveys, data collection, feedback sessions, everything else in order to create this thing. And one really simple way that Ruth Wilson Gilmore defined organized abandonment in a Jacobin podcast, she said, organized abandonment happens not by happenstance, but because a series of decisions that could have been otherwise come together to push certain people out of the path of protection or opportunity. So thinking of this as, you know, certain community, certain marginalized communities, in America know that calling 911 should be a last resort because of the significant threat of violence that can occur when police are involved in situations with people who are already stigmatized and discriminated against. 
we know that this happens predominantly with black folks in America, and that's given rise to Black Lives Matter movement and so on. But this can be seen as an example of organized abandonment in the sense that it was a conscious decision to have this linked directly in a way that connotates 911 equals what's your emergency? And so 988 is like, you know, what's your situation of distress? What's this emergency for you that we can work through? And there are certain communities that are not going to be compelled to access that service because it is related to the emergency services of 911 and police and stuff like that. So there are some communities, whether we're consciously admitting it or not, that are not going to be receiving the same protection because of the ways that organized abandonment has occurred. And this is just a continual or a continuation of the organized abandonment. Anyone is going to more easily remember this number of 988. Say, you know, white folks are more likely to call the number than, say, black folks. And so, you know, having this is an example of whether we want to admit it or not, organized abandonment in the ways that we're subconsciously or unconsciously or in some cases possibly consciously prioritizing one community over another for these protective services. I wanted to challenge kind of the, and I know I introduced it, but I want to challenge the like <laughs> 9 it was solely chosen to be, or like one of the like main positive reasons was uh, so that people would remember it better in in times of crisis i also think like as we've been discussing these crises lines operate kind of like corporations and businesses um with the way that they sell your data allegedly sell data allegedly (laughs) sell data Um, (laughs) and so that i don't think it was just a simple oh this is shorter um so let's choose like a shorter number so that way people can remember it in times of of need but also like Let's increase our numbers. Yeah, I think this is a great opportunity to shift our focus into kind of the material and cultural conditions that even set the scene and create the foundation for this kind of topic. So one of the ways in which I'm thinking of talking about this is looking at like social political determinants of health and, you know, housing instability, food instability, exclusion or rejection if you're a queer or trans person from like your family and your community. Like these are all factors that influence the livability of someone's life and they can be seen as social determinants of health in which the stress of these situations directly impact their psychological and biological wellness. So that's one thing to consider. And then looking at how disproportionately these impacts are felt across marginalized communities, specifically Black and Indigenous or Native American communities, like housing instability is a huge piece, especially for LGBTQ plus Indigenous youth. I think in one of the Trevor Project reports that I saw from like 2021 or 2022, I believe, mentioned that about 50% of LGBTQ Indigenous or Native American youth experienced housing instability, and that directly correlated to the depression, anxiety, and suicide rates of those individuals. And so if we're looking at these material and cultural 
conditions in which people live, we're naturally going to see disproportionality in who's experiencing these situations of psychological distress, who are being diagnosed with quote unquote mental illnesses and who are experiencing suicide, suicidality and accessing these prevention or supportive services. Just wanted to also mention a article that I was reading called What Can Critical Suicidology Do by Jennifer White. And one of the points that she had was talking kind of about these social and cultural impacts and how that's not often recognized in the ways that we think about suicide. It's often a pathologization of the individual. As she said, suicide is taken to be an undesirable individual action that requires no interrogation into how the phenomenon has come to be constructed over time. And that's kind of how we go about researching suicide and suicide prevention. It's just like, you know, some people are suffering and they need to endure their suffering and get to a point where they feel better. And the way that we need to prevent suicide is tell them at some point it gets better. This too shall pass. Try some dialectical behavior or, you know, talk through some of your issues with a trained professional. And she goes on to say the result is the solutions that are developed typically target individuals for change, but leave the specific social, political, and cultural contexts of people's lives, including the corrosive effects of structural inequalities, unaccounted for. And she talks about critical suicidology, saying, ethically, it it means raising questions about whether some suicides might be justifiable in a social context where there has been a clear failure to deliver on justice which if we were to offer a correction would require, and this is a quote from Talese, an equitable distribution of the requisite material and cultural resources for living well. Basically, she's saying that, you know, we have this assumption that every life is worth living and every suicide needs to be prevented. But what happens if we really grapple with this question that in some scenarios, life isn't really livable and kind of going back to the Billy Ray Belcourt quote that we included in our trailer, the quote where every moment of life is kind of like a death knell and like constant pain and it's more painful to be living than to not be living. And so that's kind of the question that she's posing as well for us to wrestle with in kind of a critical suicidology approach of what would be the implications of recognizing if some suicides are justified considering the living conditions that people experience and recognizing that suicide prevention takes a very different approach that recognizes the entanglements and contingencies of the social context and requires us to contribute to allocating resources and materials in a ways that makes people's lives more livable. It just goes into questions of like, uh, you could take it easy into Foucauldian talks about biopolitics and, you know, the the impetus of states of a certain period, including modern times, of just the right to like make live, so forcing people to live whether or not they want to. And, and so the investment is placed in the right to make live and forcing people to live rather than quality of life, which I think just 
beyond suicide hotlines and, and the question of suicide and, and uh, care. And it just touches on so many different facets of our society when it comes to like climate justice and keeping people alive through climate change versus actually having climate justice that, that ensures that the lives we're creating and the futures we are creating are, are livable, in fact. So it's about the brighter, broader implications of care and how we talk about livable worlds and, and well-being and, and things like this. Mm -hmm. And I want to specifically name colonialism here and settler colonialism, because that's a huge specter in this conversation. And specifically for indigenous communities and Native American and First Nations communities, there has been significant issues and concerns about suicidality in youth. Some resources that you look at have claimed that there's been a epidemic of suicide in indigenous youth dating back to even the 1980s. And I want to point this out because there was a recent essay that came out, or not necessarily essay, but a report that came out from the JAMA Network. I'm trying to find what JAMA even stands for. It's the Journal of the American Medical Association. Okay. JAMA, the, the Journal of American Medical Association that published this report titled The New Crisis of Increasing All-Cause Mortality in U.S. Children and Adolescents. And this is another example in which I want to kind of point out the organized abandonment that occurs because... They talk at one point specifically about demographic disproportionalities in young people and how one of their points was talking about the concern of suicide in youth. And the JAMA article specifically claims suicides among individuals aged 10 to 19 years began to increase in 2007. And they kind of trace that to the present and offer like the stark statistics of how dire the situation is. But this doesn't even take into account, you know, the suicide epidemics that have been the reality and made many indigenous communities dating back from, you know, the 1980s and then earlier. And that's kind of an organized abandonment illustration in the sense of we have this article that is generating a lot of urgency around these effects, these increasing mortality rates of U.S. children and adolescents. And there's kind of a an important call to action on these data points of like, look how many deaths we're having, you know, in these past couple years. But I want to emphasize how that kind of reflects the data collection that's even being done. Like if this data dated back to the 1980s and we were tracking the suicide rates of indigenous youth from back then, I would wager and say that it looked as stark as it does currently as it did back then, but we weren't necessarily caring about indigenous youth suicide rates now that we're seeing it in more prominent populations like white middle class young adults and youth, you know, were starting to be like, holy crap, there's so many young people that are dying of suicide and we really need to do something about this. So I want to highlight that in conjunction with the colonialism that's taking place 
and how suicide and suicide prevention is framed as this constant risk assessment, detection, management, and mental health treatment, which I'm taking from an Anne's Luce article, A Case of Justice, Suicide, and Indigeneity, which is one of like my favorite articles I've read the past couple of years, because it does take this approach of looking at suicide from an indigenous methodological approach and incorporating a critique of colonialism within this because, you know, risk assessment and surveillance and governmentality, like these are colonial tools of oppression and they are so central in the ways that we think about suicide and suicide prevention, which leads us to have such little nuance into the conversation of livability and what it means to actually live in a world that isn't constantly full of pain and suffering and in a conversation where suicide prevention isn't just, you know, keeping your body alive to have a better statistic. Uh, Yeah, I just, for me, I was just thinking it's really interesting when you talk about how when it becomes like a white teen, a white young youth problem or something like this, like it's affecting what might be defined within a certain public sphere is like, you know, our youth, our people, our, our kids, our children, whatever, uh, it becomes a problem. And I'm curious about like thinking about this through in the relation of what you brought up earlier with like organized abandonment, because it's, it's like to a certain extent showing, I think how neoliberalism and capitalism and colonialism is like a, um, cannibalistic machine because it's, it's something that like, in a way, once you get started, like it has these sort of initial parameters, these initial, what you might call like targets or, or goals in mind with the, with the goal of extracting wealth from and extracting life and all of these things from certain populations and transferring them to different populations. But then that machine just keeps going and going and affects everyone, not just the original targets. So I think that's when we talk about care, when we talk about suicidality, we talk about the effects of colonialism leading to these conditions. Uh, it, it doesn't undermine just BIPOC populations or the target of colonialism, but like it undermines basically like some sense of social fabric. I think another interesting piece to draw into this is the conversation of biosecurity. And I know there's kind of a burgeoning body of work and how we think about biosecurity and the sense of anthropologically and in the social sciences. So yeah, thinking of a piece from the annual review called On the Verge of Death, Visions of Biological Vulnerability by Carlo Cadiff. He talks about biosecurity as an emerging modality or like a particular mode in which something exists and is experienced and expressed of governmentality. So thinking about colonialism and governmentality in suicide prevention, I think biosecurity can offer an interesting dimension to this conversation. Cadiff talks about biosecurity as highlighting the uncertainty of the future, the unpredictability of events, and the difficulty of controlling life itself. But in some ways it has been kind of co-opted as a brand and some have suggested that it's brought public health 
a lot of political and financial attention and resources that it wouldn't have otherwise. So if we think of suicide prevention in this situation of how biosecurity has kind of been branded in a public health context, I think could be really interesting. And thinking of how suicide prevention is seen as care, but often is masquerading as care when it's actually surveillance and governmentality. There's a growing appeal for biosecurity because it kind of seeks to mitigate the changing society that we live in and what Ulrich Beck calls risk society. He defines it as an inescapable structural condition of advanced industrialization, saying modern society has become a risk society in the sense that it is increasingly occupied and debating, preventing and managing risk that it itself has produced. So looking at this conversation and like the livability of the world that we live in and also looking at like social and political determinants of health and what causes or what contributes to people experiencing psychological distress and moments of crisis and suicidality. You know, a lot of these contributors are conditions that have been created by the cultural context in which we live. And so biosecurity is kind of lifted up as the hope of managing and mitigating the risks that we live in. But security in itself is only stability for like a passing moment. And it's kind of operating on this negative definition because security's basically how Cadiff describes it is... Here's a quote. To enter the world of security is to enter a world of insecurity, a world of endless suspicion, speculation, deception, anxiety, uncertainty, obscurity, and paranoia. So this kind of evokes some examples that you referred to earlier, Cody, of these individuals are put into a hospital or some situation like a behavioral health unit where they're constantly being reminded of their suicidal ideation. They're constantly being in these treatments and group therapies and therapy sessions. And there's just an endless paranoia by everyone surrounding the person of, you know, if they're going to commit suicide, if they're going to self-harm, if they're going to resort to these other behaviors. And it's just that constant paranoia, suspicion, speculation, surveillance, and the desire of governmentality that kind of feeds into this idea of security. And like, if we can get them to do this, if we can do this, being more stressed and paranoid about it will eventually get us to this point of achieving security. But the paradox is security only exists in a single moment and there's no endless security. Security can't be an extended state. It's only a tiny moment. And then, you know, since we live in this risk society, we can only experience security in constant paranoia and a constant state of insecurity, if that makes any sense. Does it make any sense? To get security in a constant state of insecurity. Well, it's like security, the idea of security only exists because we are living in a constant state of insecurity. So it's like, yeah, yeah. We only know the definition of like what, like we have an idea of security because we don't live in that because it's like, otherwise it would just be what we live in. 
and we don't yeah. have, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Cause I feel like it does create this vision of like something that we're striving for. And like, I don't know, like to a certain degree, like I think that goes back to the forced hospitalizations kind of thing too, because it's like, you know, the people who are calling in are saying less, yes. Or, or texting, they're saying, yes, there's something going on. I have some sort of crisis of some sort. Uh, but once you get the police involved to go to a hospital, then it becomes like clinically defined too, in terms of like what this is, rather than just your own self-definition, what you think of it, things like that. And then the fact of it becoming this other thing then gives you, I guess, I, I would say more aberrations and, and more sort of like upon yourself, you have more negative feelings because they've been put on you. Um, so it's like this same sort of, I think, definition of feeling like you were even more of an insecure situation, compounding the sort of striving you have for security. But then that lead, can lead to also feeling like security is more impossible for you to reach or it's or it's not something that you should be familiar with if that makes sense too yeah so it's like security is kind of this lost paradise that we can never get back to and so say someone is i'm just going to stick with lost paradise as kind of the allegory for security we all don't have perfect lives <laughs> so there's yeah. constant suffering <laughs> and you know and sometimes that can get more intense. And so there's more striving for this lost paradise of security. But then, you know, if you're in a situation where you're experiencing so much distress that you reach out to service providers in whatever way, it heightens the insecurity that is already existing because of that paranoia, the constant surveillance and the constant deception or anxiety. Like it just heightens the insecurity that we're feeling and the fact that security is out of reach. And Kadith explains security refers to a state of being that has already been lost and can never be regained and restored. The normalization and naturalization of this sense of loss are crucial for security as a formation of knowledge and power, allowing actors and institutions to affirm the significance of securitization. So there's still this fantasy that exists in our culture that we can get to a state of security. You just need to be able to access this call line or you need to be able to get into this hospital or behavioral health unit and then you can get to a point of security and stability and you can get back to that lost paradise of having a good livable life but as we've been talking you know these individual treatments don't actually address the unlivability of the world that we live in and it doesn't address this constant state of insecurity and the fact that we can never get to this lost paradise of security that kind of reflects the infatuation and fixation on biosecurity and looking at this from, you know, the aspect of governmentality and how this is structuring, you know, our entire system of care and ways that we're interacting with people. And like, this is a colonial force that is occurring here through biosecurity and the ways in which we are going about, you know, caring for people yeah yeah um that's a good i was thinking too just with the way that we define security and have security as a certain 
horizon, it overlaps a lot with and, and, and how this relates to care and everything like that. It's like this kind of, I think, especially with these hotlines and even more shifting the focus to AI or focusing them to some sort of like police intervention or hospital intervention work. It's like kind of along the lines of Bung Chuhan's like the burnout society. So it's it's kind of like this neoliberal approach to uh, security and care where the impetus is also put on the individual in a way to like, I mean, yes, of course, in any society, in any whatever formation, whatever culture it is, like there is some degree of responsibility that everyone has to take for their own uh, mental health and well-being. But in a society such as ours, where there's just so many systemic and like as Clayton was talking about earlier and going into detail about like colonial histories and ongoing effects of colonialism in the present, that it becomes like in some way just like putting all of this burden on individual person without having these sort of like collective uh, sort of measures that we've had at different in different groups uh, throughout history and and you may experience in, in different points in your life now but it's like sort of like we have these ideals and, and these consumer expectations of security and what it means to live a good life and, and what it means to be this and then they say this is the way to achieve it but then the way to achieve it actually like bites you in the ass and, and gets you the other way um, and I like going along with this like it's interesting because I feel like this also does lead to even more of a, like what I would say for lack of a better term, like a mind fuck when it comes to something like this, because like uh, Bung Chul Han in the burnout society talks about how like the impetus today on necessarily, although you often are, it's not just you should, but it's also you can. And, and just the fact that you can means that you should. So it's like, it, it feels like you're given this illusion of, of choice. And so when, when you fail, like when, when something happens, it feels like you're failing. It's not the system failing you, even though that's the case, but it feels like you're the one failing because you're not living up to what you possibly can, given the idealist image of what society presents to us and, and what our collective imagination asserts as possible, period. Yeah. I I think it's interesting to return to the idea kind of that suicide and suicidal ideation is viewed as as like an individual issue instead of a systemic issue. I because I, I keep kind of returning to thinking about the trans community, and I think a lot of the times we try to use um, how gender affirming care can drastically decrease suicidal ideation for trans individuals. And I, I think it's interesting to consider that because I, I think that when we're thinking about the way that our culture views this on the individual level, it makes more sense why that kind of rhetoric and that kind of um, emotional tactic isn't really working on kind of like the everyday people who uh, don't have like a political stakes in in, in this debate why the, these kind of like rhetoric this doesn't necessarily work on them because they're not viewing it as like a marginalization and a systemic issue but they're viewing it as an individual issue like oh if only this kid got like mental health help or like they're already depressed and like just thinking that they're trans is adding on to that and and things of that nature um but I think that realizing that 
um, suicidal ideation and the marginalization that can produce mental health disparities between uh, groups in different communities. I think that a lot of the politicians trans people to not exist anymore. I think they've been very explicit in that. And I think that continuing to return to the the suicide statistics actually does not help our point with politicians. It actually hurts our point because they want trans people dead and and returning to the fact that marginalization that's already occurring is creating these mental health disparities as we are continuing to be marginalized through the legal system. We're just telling politicians that they're getting what they're wanting because they know that this will result in a group of people that they don't want to exist to not exist anymore, if that makes sense. It's also a very dark place to go, but I've been in a very dark place lately about this whole thing. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I think that's extremely true. I also kind of want to expand this and bring it a little bit to some current events that have been happening, specifically mass shootings that have been occurring in a lot of different states across the U.S. and revived conversations on gun control. It really brings conversations about mental health and mental illness to the forefront in ways that I don't necessarily appreciate because if we look at how these conversations have occurred historically and are occurring today, like it's just a cop out and it's a way to not actually take ownership of the systemic and structural changes that need to occur specifically related to gun reform and, you know, what it looks like to be a responsible gun owner. During a couple years ago, during Trump's presidency, when one of the mass shootings occurred, he just instinctively called out for like to bring back psychiatric institutions and that more people should just be institutionalized. And the motivation there is just to disappear people with any kinds of mental illnesses or madness or psychiatric distress or emotional distress. The reflex is just to like get these people out of society instead of actually helping them because it's more important for us to have access to extremely deadly weapons of war than it is for people to have, you know, a livable life. And I don't necessarily want to get into all the complexities of gun reform in that conversation, but I'm just using it as, as an example of how, you know, politically this is often used to disappear people. We just want people that aren't quote unquote normal to not exist in society. And so we can lock them up in an institution. And that's also kind of similar to how this issue exists as you're talking about it with the trans community is, you know, these people aren't quote unquote normal. So they need to disappear from society. And oftentimes mental illness is the cop out for it. And, you know, the pathology is placed on the individual whether that be, you know, trans people experience more situations of distress and more um, prejudice, and that kind of feeds into minority stress theory, or whether it's the fact of like, oh, these people are so mentally ill, they think they're trans. And, you know, they've 
caught this social contagion of wokeness. And in both of these situations, mental illness is to blame for the individual experience of a trans person. I do want to acknowledge that minority stress theory has a lot more nuance and does take into account like contextual situations of prejudice institutionally, systemically, and so on. But I do want to emphasize the centrality of mental illness here and how it's such a prominent tool in advocating for, you know, just disappearing entire marginalized groups from society. I'm in a bit of a pessimistic mood generally right now. So anyways, on that light ending note. I feel that. I do have somewhat of a closing thought if, you know, we want to do that. Sounds good. Okay, so um, to kind of wrap up, I want to harken back to Jennifer White's What Can Critical Suicidology Do? and recognize some questions that she poses at the end to kind of spark a shift in how we're interacting with suicidology or suicidality and ways in which we can show up in our communities to you know, have a more nuanced and appropriate approach to suicidality. So she ends by posing some questions, considering, you know, the theoretical, methodological, and ethical implications of critical suicide, suicidology, and posing, you know, what can critical suicidology do? She says, a critical suicidology approach is specifically where groups and community members are invited to serve as witnesses to a person's life and struggle. And I want to note that, you know, this kind of goes against the anonymous care that we mentioned earlier, where people are only interested in caring for the moment and aren't interested in the ongoing life of a person. Why is directly posing the opposite of that, saying we need to be witnesses in an ongoing way in a person's life. And she questions, what if suicidal thoughts were no longer understood as giving up on life, but instead were seen as particular forms of life or life-activating practices that provoke vital critique, freedom, rebellion, solidarity, and transformation? So what if, you know, the distress people are experiencing because of the unlivability of their life can be seen as actual critiques and behaviors of rebellion towards, you know, a more free and transformative life for them. And the responsibility is on the community around this person to kind of witness and see that through and to kind of, you know, help forge that path of livability so that the onus is not on the individual. She also includes a question if suicide itself were to be reconceptualized as a political issue and a, quote, public trouble and not merely a matter for psychologists and mental health experts, what new collective and social actions might emerge in response? So that's something that I kind of wanted to leave us with is thinking about biosecurity, colonialism, governmentality, the constant surveillance and such and discipline that are involved in suicide prevention? What if we're actually engaging with care that interacts with the person, not in a pathologizing way, but in a way that we collectively work towards social actions that might actually get responses 
for a more livable world for people. So that's kind of my closing thought. My closing thought being quoting someone else's closing thought in an article. Are we done? I definitely want to keep that in the recording. (laughs) Are we done? (laughs) All right, cool kids on the internet. Check us out on the web pages of uh, Patreons, the the tweet machines and stuff like that. Tweet machines.